welcome to the Wilco Podcast. Worship Leaders Collective is a worship community of over 32,000 worship leaders from 99 countries around the world. You can check us out online at worshipleaderscollective.com or type in Worship Leaders Collective on Facebook to get connected for free today. Our hope is to help equip you with the tools and resources you need so that you can be who God's called you to be and do what He's called you to do. You've been called for such a time as this. Listen up as we dive into another episode of the Wilco Podcast. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Wilco Podcast. My name is Jenny McGrew. Uh, We have a special guest in the house with us today. But before I introduce him and the word that you're about to hear, I want to say that we want to hear from you. So if this word today spoke to you, we want to hear feedback. We want to hear what God's speaking to you about. If you've heard other podcasts that have spoken to you, drop us an email at hello at worshipleaderscollective.com or slide a DM into our DMs uh, on Instagram at worshipleaderscollective. Again, we would totally love to hear from you because we are called to walk together in the kingdom of God for such a time as this. Amen. Okay, so we just got out of our monthly worship row lab with Mr. Ray Hughes. You've probably heard of Ray. You've probably sat in the room with Ray somewhere, someplace, perhaps in a different part of the world. Like I was in Ireland a few years ago, uh, had the opportunity to travel with Ray for, for 10 days in the Southern part of Ireland and write music. And it was definitely uh, 10 days to remember for the rest of my life and for so many of us. And if you haven't heard of Ray though, you are about to hear from a once and forever gift from God. Um, there's just nobody um, that I've experienced that carries a grace on their life in the unique way that Ray does. Today, he spoke to us on the song to write it, to live it, to be it, to know it. And one of the things that Ray said to us that I believe is a now word for us as creatives and songwriters and, and the body of Christ. And he said this, he said, longings become lyrics Lyrics become liturgy, liturgy becomes literature, and literature becomes legacy. So on that note, stay tuned for a word from Mr. Ray Hughes. Uh, every one of those trips that we've, ever, that we've been on over there, every one of them have, have this uh, uniqueness about it, but, uh, but always, always a beauty about them because we watch people come alive so much to what they're created for when you when you go to the places like that, because you know I, I've always believed that there's there are graces for places, and uh, for example, there are places that you will only experience that particular unveiling or revealing of of God's nature. And God's nature is so multifaceted, but there's some places that you just have to go to experience God in that way. And I know that sounds strange because God is everywhere. But of course, there's a biblical precedence for that as well. But uh, for example, when uh, he, God would tell uh, Samuel, you know, go down to Gilgal, I need to speak to you. Well, Samuel could have said, well, you're already talking and I'm already listening. And so why don't we just do that right here? Why wear out a good mule riding all the way to Gilgal across the desert? But it was necessary for him to go to the other place. And then what God would speak would be always profound. Even in its simplicity, it can be so profound that your life changes forever at at at, at His Word. And but it was but but the point is, it's necessary to go there. And I, and I particularly love Ireland. After thirty four trips to Ireland, uh, thirty three trips to Wales, Venice. Uh, that's some of your homeland there, and mine too. I'm a Hughes. There's more Hughes in Wales than there are trees, you know. And uh, uh, but. To be in a particular place, sometimes uh, to stand on the west coast of Ireland, on the coast of Connemara, and, and stand there in a place where you know that the wind and the and the the water have engraved the thoughts of God into that stone for thousands of years, and you realize you're suddenly you realize you're standing in the middle of a thought of God, and you get to encounter Him in profound ways. <laughs> Okay, let's don't get all emotional here about it. I do miss it. And, uh, but you see, worship, um, 
is what we're born for, of course. We we're, and we're also born to be creative. And so to respond creatively to the beauty of his presence is a part of what we're about. And so I think of it, you know, uh, okay, we're created by the creator to be creative. And if you're, so if you're not creative, and, and also we're created to worship. And so doesn't that sort of imply, strongly imply that worshipers should be creative? So if you're born to worship and you're created to create, should not our worship be far more creative than just the cookie cutter, same old, same old, here we come again. Even though there's great value in liturgy, there, there's great value in, in, in disciplined structures and those kind of things that we need to have in our lives to be effective and be fruitful in our lives. But there's also something about that now moment where you realize you're standing with him and you're you're experiencing uh, him and you're interacting with him in such a way that uh, that it's not only bringing him glory, but that glory is changing you and you're being changed as as you respond. And of course, if, uh, when you respond to the glory of the Lord, that you step forward and when you react, you step away. And so to live a life of worship to me, <clears throat> and, and, and let me say this, w worship is not about meeting the needs of some great, big, insecure, egotistical God that's got identity issues and uh, needs us to be flattering him and stuff all the time. That's, that's not who our God is, but because he's a father and uh, he's not a formula. Uh, he's a father and, and he is a father who seeks us to worship him. Because in moments of spirit and truth worship, that's where he receives our undivided attention. And part of who we are as worship leaders is to create atmospheres where everyone can experience his undivided attention. Now, and also experience the purest expressions of, uh, uh, well, let's say it like this. Let, let me, I wrote this for you. He, he is a father who seeks us to worship him because moments of spirit and truth worship, he receives our undivided attention and our purest and purest expressions of our love. Uh, while he gives us his undivided attention and purest expressions of his love. These are moments when both parties, he and us, experience love as a gift and not a reward. The seekers, in those moments, seekers become finders in moments of worship. He was seeking us as we were seeking him. So what is worship? Well, it's when love finds love. And, uh, and something very healing uh, always happens in our in our broken lives and it, and even in our, uh, and I, I hate to use the word success in the kingdom, but but even though we're having a good season in our life, maybe, or maybe we're experiencing what the world would consider to be success. I don't think ministry should ever be about success. I think ministry is about sacrifice. And I don't, and I don't think uh, we should be those that are driven to, to do things like, um, um, it's not, it's not about building a ministry, guys. It's, it's about how are you going to give your life away? Uh, that's the journey we're on. So we don't get to experience this world like everybody else uh, does that has not seen his glory. Because once we've experienced his glory on any level, uh, we are forever changed. And, uh, and so to continue to move our lives forward into that embrace is an important part of who we need to be as worship leaders because the greatest tool we have as worship leaders is not our gifting and ability to sing and lead and, and even respond to a congregation and, and bear with me now and not just surf the emotions of a crowd and determine how to take the dynamics to a different place to create a new response and make us feel like we're important and we're successful. That's not what worship is about. That's not what worship leaders are about. A worship leader is one whose overflow of your worship would be the greatest tool you would have. And so musicians, it's, it, it's, it's, about, it's not about doing their, their job for them. When you get on the stage, it's not your, your job to do their job. 
Uh, think of it like this. As musicians, you, your job is just to facilitate and to create and put enough water in the room for them to walk on. But they got to be the ones that do their own walking. And the very best tool, again, that you have for that is the overflow of your worship. And uh, let it be real. Let it be genuine. Let it be authentic. Let it be a train wreck if necessary. God does not hide or run away from feedback. It's okay. Um, if things go wrong, sometimes that's the beginning of things going right. And so it's not about creating an atmosphere of articulation of giftings and music. Those are good and they're necessary for us to function with excellence and, and skill. I mean, the Bible says wonderful things about skill and, uh, and we need to be uh, giving ourselves to the wonderful aspects of skill as well in our songwriting, in our worship leading, in our singing, whatever it is, whatever it is that is your creative expression that awakens worship in others, because that's one of the reasons your creativity has taken a different position corporately, maybe, than other people's. And, uh, and from that corporate place, then you have a responsibility to be a part of the bouquet, you know, and uh, and uh, it's uh, it, but but it has to begin. Foundationally, it has to begin in worship, and that per, that personal worship, personal devotion. Pers you know, it's, it's all. Uh, it, and I just I just remembered that I'm, I've actually got a subject I'm speaking on today. I'm just sitting here rattling. Um, but I, I think we sent out a title of something I was going to talk about, and I need to find that <laughs> so we can so. You know, so so much for the excellence, y'all. It's a good rattling. We're we're okay with it. You said you were going to teach on the song, but yeah, yeah, let's do that because that because because that's really what we're talking about here. Is 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 the Lord? You are the strength of my life. You are my song. Song uh, uh, song is not just uh, any more than singing. It's just about uh, 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 that's not singing. Scripturally, singing is you know when it says "sing unto the Lord," a new song, uh, uh, it 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 carries a lot more weight than than we sometimes realize because when you look at Psalm thirty three, I'll just jump over there and use that one as an example. It says, "Rejoice in the Lord, <clears throat> O ye righteous," and um, and and so Psalm thirty three starts off here with the word "rejoice," which is actually translated rejoice, but it's a, it's a deeper word than that. It's the word ranon, and it's it means a ringing cry or a sustained singing out a shout. It's a, it's a sustained note that rings the purest desires of your heart into an atmosphere. And, and, and at other times, that word rejoice is, is, is translated to, um, where, like when the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, he will sing and rejoice over you with joy, and that, that's that's a that's a, a bit of a different idea there. But it means to spin like a top with violent emotion. So God, uh, and uh, let's change the word just a little bit. Change the context just just a smidge. Uh, the Lord, my God, in the midst of me, is mighty. He will sing and rejoice over me with joy with his joy. So because he has enthroned himself upon my praises and I live a life of sustained worship, even when I don't understand, because sometimes worship is just about, you know, um, you know, worship in spite of your weariness and praise in spite of your pain. Uh, that can be a, a real part of our journey sometimes. You know, David had those same, same, uh, um, same issues, you know, he lived a real life finding God in it, uh, and he was authentic about it. But anyway, it says, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Righteous just simply means those who are rightly aligned with God, rightly positioned. In, in, in our journey really is, what it, what's it really all about? Anyway, it's always about just stumbling uphill toward mercy all the time. And and we're always just, when you look at the life of David, this worshiper that we all acknowledge, and all that he carried, and you look at Saul, well, both of them were flawed men. Uh, you know, the only difference was when Saul sinned, 
it hardened his heart. When David sinned, it broke his heart. And so he was constantly finding new ways or, or another way, another day and uh, to, to engage with God, no matter, uh, you know, create in me now a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, take away this, this shame out of my life. Let, let me really respond and relate to you, head held up, eyes open, beholding the beauty of who you are. Uh, let me live that life, Lord. And because he knew immediately when, when he had stepped away from that. And, uh, but uh, it says, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. And it really is. And of course, that, that is the word, that word praise there. I don't, and I don't have time to talk about it right now because we're going to run out of time here in a bit. But, but the thing is, is it says there praise for praise from the upright is beautiful. And I'll remind you that the Bible actually never says praise. Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament will you find praise. It doesn't say praise uh, because it's a Hebrew Bible. We have an English Bible, and we our English word is praise, but the Hebrew word is not praise. And there are seven different Hebrew words. Uh, are are, are y'all familiar with those seven Hebrew words for praise? Okay, and uh, and they and but they always in they they always involve a physical response. Singing, shouting, the the most translated word praise, which is not this one right here, by the way, but the most translated word that's translated praise is the word halal. And halal means to rave, to boast, be clamorously foolish, to act madly, to radiate and shine. Hmm. And it's more translated in the light realm than it is the sound realm. But it means halal, to rave about halal yah. So when we say halal yah, hallelujah, that's where we get the hallelujah. And, and it, so halal yah is to halal the uncreated God, yah, Yahovah. See how it works? There's three words that are the same in every language. Hallelujah, amen, and Coca-Cola. No matter where you go, there are always uh, three words. But this particular word, right? So when you think about that word relating to light, even more than sound. So when we create atmosphere atmospheres of halal, we're stepping into a a grace upon the moment that is connected to the first time that God ever said, "Light, let there be light." So we're halaling Yahovah, the uncreated God who created all things. And, 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 and by the way, you know why he did that? Because he's awesome. That's why he did that. But for praise is upright, for it is beautiful. And then it goes on and says, praise the Lord with the harp. And that word praise there is yada, to shoot out the hands and uh, to raise the hands. Make melody to him with the instrument, ten strings. And then here it is, sing to him a new song. And I'll just tell you guys, I think we're right now, in a place of where they're, we're, we're stepping into a new era. Uh, we're stepping into a new era where there will be a new day, uh, a new song, a new sound, a new language. Uh, we're, what we're doing right now, we're in this huge transition with humanity. And the, our whole world, and, and I know we're kind of all the way around the globe on this call, but the whole world has been traumatized, and there, there's we we have global trauma going on all the way around the world, and uh, but we're we are not without the goodness and the mercy, the love and the kindness of God, and uh, and so right now I believe this whole thing is just it's really about introducing a new era, um, a, a new day, a new song, a new language. Let let me let me show you a little bit, of, and then we're, as we talk about where we are here. I want to point this out that what will bring this forward are the Davids of today that, that realize who they are, thereby really realizing who they were created to be and the God that created them. So there is a depth of, of, of relational um, expression now that's going to begin to be connected to music that's going to carry, carry his power. And we're going to begin to see the real supernatural demonstrations of God's power, releasing his purpose 
in the presence of worship of, of worshiping people. There's going to there's going to be corporate miracles because a corporate sound is happening. It's no longer going to be like the musicians on the stage doing what they do and everybody waiting their turn. There's going to become a, a, a very different thing now. Now and and here's how it worked with in David's day. And and consider all of you, all of us on this call. Consider let's let's consider just what um, aspect of David that we carry in our individual lives. And, uh, and also let's, let's consider how multifaceted the nature of God is and how each of our individual and corporate responses awaken a demonstration of those particular um, uh, aspects of God's nature. So uh, that sounds kind of, that sounds a little bit too collegiate or something there. It sounds a little bit too fancy. I'm just saying what I, what I believe is there's going to be areas that carry particular anointings that are actually demonstrating particular and unique expressions of God's multifaceted nature. There's going to be places that are known. When this worship starts, healing comes. When worship starts, salvation comes. When worship begins, there's going to be a first note grace you're going to find yourself no longer fighting to get everybody engaged in a physical activity that looks like praise and worship. It's just going to be a sweeping of his glory that's going to come as a result of, of, of a new era, a new day, a new expression. All right. Now, let me, let me, <clears throat> in songwriting, it begins with the songwriting process. And then, and it, uh, but it also, Let's, let's look at David's life like this. Longings, in David's life, longings became lyrics. Because he longed after God the way he longed after God. And there's all, sorry about that little ding, folks. I've been trying to get that turned off since March, and I can't figure it out. But so everything is, every time this thing dings, just let's consider it an amen, all right? <laughs> um but so, all right, what are we talking about? Longings become lyrics. And there's all, all kinds of reasons why David had such a longing in his heart. Uh, and, there, and, and numerous. Well, for one, he was a misfit. Uh, so he would always carry that sense of he didn't belong. He just didn't fit. He didn't fit in his own family. He wasn't there the day Samuel showed up to anoint the next king. Of course, no one knew that Samuel was coming to anoint the next king. But David wasn't there. We know that. And we know that where was he? He was out in the shepherd's field, tending the sheep, the, the, the swaddling lambs, for goodness sake. The reason, and the reason he was swaddling those lambs is because he was taking care of the lambs that had already been chosen to be sacrificial lambs. And so they had to be without spot or wrinkle, without blemish. And he was honorable in his duty, and, and he was conscious and aware of who, who he was in that, in that mundane, uh, uh, menial task out there. But he did it with honor. And in that atmosphere, he also uh, became there the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, uh, because there's where he would sing. There's where he, and why would he sing? Because that's also where he was longing. And, and, and part of the language of music is longing, um, love, and loss. And anytime you're in a season of loss, you need to be finding the song that you were born to sing, and it'll always bring you back home. And, uh, and so he, know, he, he knew in that, in that uh, place of being a misfit, he, he didn't fit in his own family. He didn't, he didn't fit in the army over there on the hill, did he? He, he, didn't, he didn't fit in the house of God. He couldn't go to the house of God. That's one of the reasons he longed for the courts of the Lord, longed for the house of God so much. And uh, again, but, uh, which also speaks into the reason why he wasn't at home that day when Samuel shows up. Uh, because uh, he, uh, he, he, now some scholars believe that the reason uh, he longed for the courts of the Lord, he couldn't go because he was illegitimate. Uh, so, and a, an illegitimate child or an illegitimate son in his case would not be, if you were illegitimate, you were not allowed and uh, under the old order. 
and uh, and uh, you know uh, anyway that's a, that's a whole other thing. But everywhere he he fit nowhere. He felt like a misfit. If, it, if the world if the world was a tuxedo, he'd have been a brown pair of shoes. If you know what I mean. And uh, <clears throat> but out there in that place of longing, longing became lyrics. And again, it's then lyrics would become the language of the people of God. And then language would become, that language would become the liturgy. And the liturgy we, we enjoy today and how we interact with God today is the liturgy. And language comes from there. And that's one of the reasons I tell songwriters, I say, hey, when you're writing songs, you're not writing next year's most popular course. You're writing the next generation's language for accessing God. And the very best time to influence the heart of a child is about 100 years before they're born. So you need to be writing songs right now. This ain't about a, a ministry with a five-year plan. This is about a kingdom people with an eternal plan. And, and, and that's what a song is. A song, <clears throat> a song is the sustaining of God's purpose eternally. And that's... Uh, uh, all right. So language became liturgy, and then liturgy would become literature. And then that literature becomes one of the ways that we access truth in life. And then lastly, it becomes legacy. This is David's legacy. And who was David? He was a songwriter, but he was more. He was a songwriter that wrote, actually was able to access God's desire and write it, even in even in his own uh, even in his own weaknesses and his inconsistencies, shall we say? Because remember, the Bible says, and uh, and the uh, Bible says that, that he was a man after God's own heart, and he's the only person God ever said that about. There's a man after my own heart. It, it actually says there in Samuel, he he sought a man after his own heart, and all the way over in Acts, it says he found one after his own heart. And the only one that, the, it's the same person, the only one that was ever, and I hate to use the word accused, but he was the only one ever who, who was called the man after, after my own heart. And we have an opportunity to be that as well. And why? Because we have longings. And, we, and, if, we, and we, if we steward those tender moments in our lives correctly, we'll always bring uh, bring truth and authenticity out into the lyric. And what he did is he changed the language of the nation. He introduced them to ideas like seven uh, possibilities of expressing your praise unto the Lord. And he did it seven times a day. Seven times a day he would perform the vow of praise unto the Lord. Three times a day he would pray. And, though, and now we're talking about even after he had become king. So no matter what's going down, seven times a day, it's going to happen. Song is going to be found. Can you imagine living a life like that? We should be. Seven times a day. You know, in other words, it's, it's, there's a continuity to our existence when we realize that we were born to sing. And, uh, and so when you see this uh, uh, sing, it says, sing to him a new song. Now, the word sing there is, is the word shira, which means to walk about as a strolling minstrel, releasing the sound of who you are and what you bring. And th that word shira is also used in the marketplace as, as you, when you, oh, fish, we got fish. Oh, we got, you know, bagels, bagels, bagels. You're, you're walking into an atmosphere, drawing the attention to what you carry. That's the word shira. And but so he says, and remember, they had no PA systems back then. So, you know, the musicians would walk about Zion, strolling, carrying the sound, the express, expressed humanity musically, shifting the atmosphere. And he appointed those to thank, praise, and to record. So he had full time staff paid thankers. Awesome. Full time staff paid uh, uh, praisers. So thanks and praise. And he had full-time staff paid recorders. And it's the word zakar, and it means to remember or to commemorate. 
And so the whole idea there was he had people that David had actually had people following him around. And every time of seven times a day, he would break into these spontaneous songs because out of his longing, a lyric would come alive. And these people would follow him around and, and they would capture every word. He'd say, hey, get this over to the chief musician upon Nehaloth. This is a flute song. A flute is the only texture, tone, and timbre that will rightly translate and interpret what I'm sensing in the spirit. So this song with that instrument will carry a weightiness that will bypass the intellectual realm, go straight to the spirit and awaken who we are as humanity and born to worship. Imagine that. That's what music was about. And he had a guy named Kenaniah. He says, Kenaniah, First Chronicles 15, 22, says he was for song. He instructed about the song because he was skillful. And the word song, it's not ah, uh, ah, uh, uh. The word song, he instructed about the song. The, it's the word masal, which means the prophetic weightiness, burden, or mantle of the weight of the glory of God that would rest upon the shoulders of the musicians. And when they played their instruments, there would be a revealed manifestation of God's presence. That I want to sign up for some of that. It said he instructed about this song because he was skillful. He was an older guy, and, and he, he, uh, he taught him how to prophesy on the instruments. Because in 1 Chronicles uh, 25.1, it says, David and the captains separated to the service of the house of the Lord, those that would, who would prophesy upon the cymbals and timbrels and harps and, and, and on down the line. Gives a list of the, the instruments he would prophesy with. And, uh, and, um, and so, uh, so let me remind you what prophecy really is. Prophecy can be predictive. It can predict the future. It can create the future. But also it can prevent the future. What? We always hear about the predict and create, don't we? Because it carries the power and the authority of the word of God being spoken is predictive. It's also creative. What's this prevention thing? When God's people become disaligned with the, the presence of God, worship would cease. They would uh, uh, be invading or infiltration from other demonic tribes that worshiped other gods and all this. And pretty soon God's people, would, or many times because they'd be, or they were being encamped against, they would compromise and eventually be, begin whoring after other gods. Like they wanted the stage more than they, more than they wanted his presence and stuff. So all kinds of things you can sow into that. Or speaking into that. Uh, but anyway, when their motives would become unclear and impure, uh, then, then some, out of nowhere, God would raise up someone that would come and speak prophetically in such a way that it would give them opportunity to repent, realign themselves with the presence of God. And, and the difference would be when, you, when they would go whoring after other gods, famine and pestilence and all kinds of things could happen. But when they turn back to God, now it would cease to be famine, and then that would become the favor of God and the presence of God. So to realign their vocabulary and their language and their song and their worship and all of that was welcoming God into the day and his favor upon their lives. And this is a battle that's been go that was going on before David's day and after. Thirteen times in the Old Testament, you see this thing, and then... And, uh, and they would go whoring after other gods. And then, and then God would raise up a king, somebody you know, out of obscurity, out of a shepherd's field or wherever. And it says, but he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And, they, and so when worship would be restored, then the song would be known. Beautiful thing. And, uh, uh, but anyway, where were y'all? Uh, so sing to him a new song. New is... Uh, and, and, and by the way, making melody to him with on an instrument of 10 strings, your Bible might say praise. There's another word uh, that's, that's uh, zamar. It's anytime you see sing praises, if there's two words, it's a compound phrase, sing praises is zamar. And that means to the accompaniment of the plucking or the twang of the harp. Now, David had four different kinds of harps. Some of them twanged and some of them were more percussive. But nonetheless... I mean, there's even one, the kenor, which, which, which was an instrument designated for rejoicing, actually. We think it was some tender little Casio charismatic tiptoe through the tulips kind of thing out there. No, it was a, it was a 
it was a let's get it done kind of instrument. He even had bones and pieces of metal and things kind of interwoven through the strings that would give it like a snare drum sound. And he and he was played skillfully. He could play above the bridge and below the bridge and around the bridge. You know, uh, he was. Um, uh, that's a whole other thing. I don't get into the musicology of the instrumentation here, but it's it's. But it was. But he was particular about certain instruments carrying certain sounds. So when he would say, "Oh, get this song over to the chief musician upon not Nahaloth, the flute, but Neganoth, the strings, or upon Shushaniduth." Uh, which is the trumpet of assemblage, or he might, you know, he might acknowledge timbrels, tabrets, or tambourines, which is frame drums. And um, uh, by, and, and by the way, back in those days, uh, all the all drummers were girls. Hmm. And that that started over there. Uh, that's that started with uh, Miriam when she came across, uh, you know, and they standing. What was that all about? It was about worship. Uh, Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they can come away and that they might come away and worship me, the restoration of their song. For 400 years, they had no song. 400 years, no singing. 400 years, no art. 400 years, no, no beauty. No, no, they couldn't even speak up above a whisper without somebody uh, taking this, uh, this, um, sit, uh, this, um, Sorry, I've got too many things running in my head right now. But it was symbols. It would, and it would call them back to a, to quieten down. It's like a slingshot with little discs on it. And when that would happen, it would go back to silence. And, of course, when they uh, – um, uh, and they also use that same instrument for, for uh, um, stepping into the uh, two deities and – and all uh, and all this stuff. Anyway, ISIS and all that Idolat idolatry was used for. And uh, so anyway, when they came across, but to get to the Red Sea, and it's all about worship, right? And and I'll just tell you like this: it did not require sea parting faith. It required stick raising obedience. He didn't have to work up a big bunch of faith. He just had to be obedient to raise the stick. And then God began to move and reveal the supernatural realm in a people who had spent 400 years mashing out mud between their toes, making bricks for the man with no creativity and no song. Now, walk across on dry land looking at fish bellies. They're seeing things that no one had ever seen. They're watching the supernatural around them. And when they step on the other side, Miriam grabs a tambourine and says, come on, girls. And so that tells us is the first worship leader was not only a woman, it was a woman with a tambourine. And that's scary in the house of God. But nonetheless, <laughs> I mean, we're not passing out tambourines at the doors anymore, you understand? <laughs> uh, uh, but, he, uh, but I don't know, I have no idea uh, now <laughs> uh, where we are here, but um, praise the Lord with the harp. And, it, and there was a designation for the sounds and textures and, and, and so on. Sistrum. That's the word. <clears throat> the instrument was a sistrum. Now I can go on. I can, <laughs> I can go on with the rest of my life now. I hate it when I can't think of something like that. I used to could remember everything, you know, whether it happened or not. But anyway, it says here, sing to him a new song. And there's that, there's that word, new song. The new, and that word is kadash. Now, get this, guys. Worship leaders, you need to carry this one with you. If it's going to be a new song, new means to, the root word, word there is rebuild, renew, repair, and restore. And look what, what has been lost. Oh, there's so much beauty has happened and that we've all been able to enjoy, but my goodness, look what has been lost in the music realm. You know, I, I would say if, if we could just change the way the church understands worship and music and creativity, we'd change the way the world encounters God. And that's our job. And we keep letting the world write the rules of engagement. We keep letting the world tell us what music is. We keep letting the world tell us what creativity is. And as a result, the church lives 20 years behind the cutting edge of creativity at all times. 
And yet, yet we're supposed to be the ones that are establishing the standards in the house of the Lord that the world can, can respond to God with. But we're living 20 years behind the cutting edge of creativity. You know why? Because anything that comes along as cutting edge creativity, the first 10 years, we criticize it. Second 10 years, we emulate it till we become imposters of what's going on. And there's no authenticity. There's n- and there's, uh, there's no innovation happening in the house of the Lord. Why? Because we've created atmospheres of sameness. And we call it unity. It's not sameness. I mean, it's not unity, it's sameness. So anyway, I, th- I think we ought to, all ought to challenge our own hearts as to how, to, how we respond to the Lord individually and, and, and in our worship communities. Uh, everybody's not supposed to sound like uh, Bethel. Everybody's not supposed to sound like, uh, I don't even know all the names of them out there, you know, Kansas City or or um, Hillsong and, and all that. Uh, we're not supposed to sound like we're, we're supposed to find the, the, the uniqueness of how God's presence rolls over uh, the lands that, that, that you're from. Uh, now, now, I could open up a subject there that I'll talk about for three hours, so let's move on. But sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, and that and that. That word there, that shout is a teruah. It's an alarming joy. And when joy comes to the house of the Lord, it doesn't just need to be some Pentecostal expression or something straight out of the mountains where I come from with the old-fashioned shout. It, there just needs to be, sometimes we need, just need to allow the, the alarms of joy to be sustained and, 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 and therefore create atmospheres of joy. Uh, and and it's not about us creating it as much as yielding to the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And what brings him that joy? Our obedience. There's there's a, numerous things that you could put in that list, but but obedient worship is is one of the things that brings him great him great joy, and it's the joy of the Lord that becomes our strength, not our joy. It's His joy. All right. Anyway, uh, we've we've only got a we've we've only got two more hours, so I'm going to hurry up and, and move on. <laughs> uh, so some of y'all probably on, on some t- time thing, a time zone that you're it's two o'clock in the morning or something. So I um, I won't do that. You, you know, there's no such thing as time zones until there was such a thing as trains. We didn't have time zones before trains. Um. I don't know why that was important to tell you that, but the fact is, there was, it was unnecessary. Um, but also, there's, um, and that was back in the day when, uh, when uh, communication traveled at the same speed as transportation. Used to, if you, if you, if I'm, if I'm in right here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and I want to speak to, to, uh, to Jenny. Well, what have I got to do? I've got to send somebody on a horse or a stagecoach or something with a with a communication all the way to wherever that is in Canada. And uh, so communication traveled at the speed of transport. And uh, that's not who we are anymore. We're in a new era. We're in a new day. We're, we live in a very different world now. There's sounds that used to be common that we've never, mo- many of us have never even heard. How long has it, how long has it been since you heard wagon wheels on the street? On cobblestone, how how long has it been since you've you heard the squeak of a saddle? Uh, how long has it been since you heard a whippoorwill? How long has it been since you know? So the soundscape has changed dramatically over time, hasn't it? Our world has changed dramatically over time, but God will always have a remnant in his, in every generation that is able to access the truth that was put in motion by the one by the one who was his longing turned into lyrics, and lyrics turned into language, and, and language turned into literature, and, and so on. But we are those now. We've been handed a baton in our generation to be the ones that carry a new song. Now, you know, what, what I, you know, how's, how's a good way to land this here? Let me say it like this. Uh, and then if you want to, we can have a minute of, 
of questions. I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but uh, Jenny, I'm just going going with your lead there. But here, here's the thing: your your worship is something that uh, that uh, will be effective as a result that you live it uh, and you write it. And you say, "Well, well, I'm not a writer." Um, well, right. You, know, you ever know people that can just, man, they just pick up a pen and they just flow. They just, they can just, they just, this flow of consciousness and they just write. And, you know, that, that, and oh man, I wish I could do that. I'm glad I can't do that because that's not a writer. A writer is one who cares enough to struggle with the words and struggle with the truth, struggle with the revelation, struggle with what God gives you. Don't become so spontaneous in it that you miss the beauty of something deep and profoundly beautiful God wants to put in your life. So what you do is you live writing. You know, um, remember John on the Isle of Patmos, right there in the front part of it. Um, there John was on, on the Isle of Patmos and and the Lord told him, what you see, write it. And John could say, well, I'm not a writer. I didn't tell you you were. I just said, write. Well, I don't have a publishing deal. I didn't tell you you're going for a publishing deal. I told you to write. Well, I'm not a, I'm, uh, what about editing? I didn't tell you to edit. I told you to write. I told you to write what you see. What you see, write it, capture it, value it enough to make sure it doesn't get away. Because I'm going to reveal myself to you. Revelation means I'm going to reveal myself to you in ways that no, none of humanity has ever seen the images and the, these powerful metaphors and similes and, and the poetry. And, and, and there, there it is. Uh, and, and, the, and the poetry. Remember now, one-third of the Bible is poetry. One-third. Did you realize that? A third of the Bible is poetry. People who had the sensitivities, sensibilities, and, and, and awareness to be awakened, to pay attention, and to feel, and to see, and to know, and respond. A third of the Word of God is born out of that right there. Write it. And, and, and of course, John, so what you see, right? And he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard... And, and, and uh, I heard behind me, I, mean, you, I, 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 I probably ought to look it up, but anyway, he heard behind him this, uh, that uh, a sound as of a trumpet. Not a trumpet, a sound as of a trumpet. And he turned to see the sound. And it was, it was a, uh, that shall they uh, say, what was the word? Shall, anyway, something ping say. It was, Ooh, it was it was billowing vibrations. It was frequency set in motion, which is what music is, which is what sound is. And when you set sound in motion, well, then you get to you, when you sing, you're putting a wrinkle in the wind. You're adding the beauty of your expression into that, and there there's an atmosphere now that's being charged with the beauty of who God is in your life is being put in there as like a lyric. But now. Now, John was told, what you see, write it. And, he, and I turned to see the voice. I thought you'd hear a voice, not see a voice. But he turned and he saw the voice. And the vo his head and hair was white like wool, as white as any snow, eyes of flame of fire, girded about with gold. And his hand was seven stars and his mouth a two-edged sword. When you see him, you know he is Lord. Now, well, that kind of rhymed. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to get into rap on you guys there. But, but nonetheless. What you, but you see the point, he could see the sound. He could hear. So his, his spirit was alive to the, all of the senses. And, and as writers and worship leaders and musicians and poets, and, you need to be alive to all your senses. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and also, we need to quit buying this garbage about you have five senses. You don't have five senses. Just because Aristotle said there's five senses, we bought it. Forget it. There's over 21 senses, and all of them should be uh, our whole man engaged with the beauty of the presence of God in our life. 
and and we shouldn't be limiting uh, our created worship beings to to five simple senses that some Greek philosopher decided on uh, hundreds of years ago. No, we need to become fully aware, even as music impacts you, uh, hearing and sight and sound. And, on a, you know, we respond musically, neurologically. We, re, we respond emotionally. We, we respond on, even on a cellular level. Uh, we are created to respond to music and the intent that it carries. You know, God made us to be like that. And so what John had to do is he had to come into agreement with that. And that's the reason he could, could see what he saw and hear what he was seeing. And, um, and, uh, and um, why do we think that would be that, that those kind of promises would only be limited to somebody that was in the Bible thousands of years ago? And, uh, and you know who he was? He, like you said, he wasn't a writer. You know who he was? He was a storyteller. Yeah. What is a storyteller? A storyteller is nothing more than a guardian of memories. And David said on the front end, sing this song. Remember his mighty acts and tell of his wondrous works to your children and your children's children's children. Make sure the stories don't get lost. Make sure the stories don't get gone. Of course, in Ireland, they call them the old Shanakis. And a Shanaki or Sean or John. So we got to be those who remember the mighty acts of God and musically tell it and create the stories that will be carried from generation to generation. And uh, so when you're writing, that's that's who you are. You're you're setting promises in motion. You're set, actually setting revelation in motion, revealing God to the ones that are going to come behind you. And you know what? They'll get to see him, know him, feel him, love him. Worship him. We've got to get away from this uh, where we keep imitating the imitators that are imitating the imitators until they become emulators of the emulators that were imitating the imitators. And pretty soon we're all imposters. Find your song that you were born to sing. Live it. Write it. Sing it. Be it. Do it. And know it. You know, if we keep letting the world tell us what music is, we'll keep doing it like the world is and wonder why nothing's changing. It's time for a new song. And when I say, when I say know it, I, you know, I think the creative arts centers of all communities should be the house of God. We need to have Kenanias and Asaphs, Jeduthans and Hemans and Davids and, and all of those that carried it in those generations. We need to have corresponding a corresponding uh, reality of that today. We need to be the ones that are putting the music in the world rather than trying to reinterpret um, what's out there that is pretty much most of the time just born out of superficial emotional uh, agreement with the miseries of the world. You know, I mean, when, the, when I say one of the languages of music is lost, and love and and so on, uh, you know. A, a perfect example of that is the Hopi Indians. Every song that they sing in that tribe, the Hopis, every song is about the same thing. It's about water. Their entire music world are songs about water. Why? Because in that desert, that's the greatest lack. That's the greatest need, and that's one of the reasons when you listen to the music of the world, most of it has always been about love because that's the greatest need and that's the greatest lack and the greatest loss. They never get to experience the depth of the love of God. We, they only get to experience the love and loss in a human uh, expression yeah, and, uh, and all the dynamics of, of people trying to come together on, on some level, you know what I'm saying. So anyway, live it, write it, but, but you know, the academics and the and the educators in the house of God are carrying gifts and unique um, expressions of their life that should be fully utilized in the house of the Lord. We need we need Kenanias today that will teach everybody how to prophesy, uh, and and there are biblical valid methods 
that were used to teach them how to prophesy and release the, the power and presence of God. And maybe maybe one of these days we'll have time now and I'll get into that and show you how it works. I can give you a quick version. There's, okay, consider a 22-string harp, 22 letters in the alphabet. Every letter in the alphabet has a numerical value, a tone value, a light value, a word value, a numerous values, right? 22 letters, 22 strings. And, and of course, we know that God is a triune being. And he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're, tr we're a trinity, spirit, soul, and body. There's the triuneness, that triad of God is, is the, uh, uh, was, is, is to come. Yesterday, today, and forever. You can find that triad everywhere in the nature of God. Even, even in, his, in, in, in his name. Uh, that, remember now, 22 letters, 22 strings. There are no vowels, only consonants. And so you... They would take this, the triad the, of a chord, you know, first, third, and fifth, another triad, and they would play the numbers or play the letters of the name of God without vowels, only consonants. So what they were doing was playing the name, thereby the nature, and awakening the manifest presence of God. Now that's that's a, a two-hour teaching that I just did in two minutes. So so. Also, no, there's a lot of other things wrapped around that. But how unique it would be that God would express his triune being through sound like that. Whoa. When, which is what he did in, in, in the beginning, actually. But anyway, um, I don't know what I was going to tell you about that. But preach it, pray it, sing it, shout it, uh, prophesy it, dance the new sound, paint I want here's things that our churches I believe need to be doing. We need, we need to be doing things like whatever song is got the fire and the life on it right now in your house. Well, that that uh, treat it almost as if it was a was not just a language and a lyric, but also a liturgy and and and, and allow it to become the language so you can sing it, play it, do it. Let that song be a real song. See, we think of a song as a two and a half minute expression of emotion and rhythm and and uh, and um, uh, lyric and imagery, metaphor, simile, poetry, all the things that uh, that a two and a half minute. But that's not not the way God sees song. Lord, you are the strength of my life. You are my two and a half minute expression of emotion and rhythm and. And all that, no. Song is very different. Song, a song can even be seasonal. Uh, we see it in all the feasts and the and the sounds and the things that they would do there that were ritualistic and also liturgical in our in a more modern understanding. But see, the psalms should not be a backdrop in our church services. They need to be the backbone of our lives. And if they become backbone of our lives, they're a part of our very existence. And so those psalms become a very different thing. That's not just the top 150 hit parade of David's time anymore. There's something new. There's something perpetually new that can come out of uh, every, every word and every letter has a tone value and a numerical value and a musical value and a light value and so on. And we need to. We need to. I think we could learn from that. Uh, what if? What if we did things like, uh, um, whatever song is really got a, 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 a now revelatory grace on it for your house? Have the artists paint it, the dancers dance it, the builders build it, the wood carvers carve it, the singers sing it, the dancers dance it. The and for a whole month. The, your preacher, your pastor is going to preach on that song. And it, it, we're going to call it a season of, you know, and whatever whatever the song is that is chosen. Don't you think the Lord would be gracious enough to speak his life into that expression that he wants to make sure that we get about him? And so let, let's get every, one of the reasons we have to keep going to another song and another song and another song is because there's this boredom that happens in the psyche of humanity. And they, so we have to keep creating these confined times kind of things. But we're dealing with an eternal God here. 
God made time to keep it all from happening at once. So he, he created time for us. He's a timeless, eternal God. I just think it'd be beautiful if churches uh, started to explore ideas that are beyond the parameters of, our, uh, of the way it's always been uh, because it's safe. Throw your safeness out the window. We got, we got to get on with God. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope you felt encouraged and a little more equipped for the journey you're on this season. If you're interested in weekly mentorship in a small group setting or would like to find more worship resources, check it all out at worshipleaderscollective.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Connect, encourage, and equip. This is what we're all about at Wilco. We go together, not alone. Together, we can help move church forward.